Well, good morning. It is good to be with you guys. Good to be back. We spent the last couple of weeks seeing our families in Texas. Spent about 42 hours driving uh, in the van, all seven of us. Two parents, three older kids, twin toddlers. Uh, it was a joy um, and delight to get to spend so much time together inside the cabin of a vehicle. No, it was good. We had, we had fun. It's good to be back. As soon as we got back, um, we moved the twins out of their baby beds into toddler beds and started potty training them. So it's, uh, it's a wild time at the house. Uh, it looks like a disaster zone. I know a couple of you uh, brought us food. We were so grateful for that coming in uh, after being gone, uh, but horrified that you had to look at a house that, that looked like two frag grenades had been thrown into the first floor. Um, I guess not everybody knows that language. Those of you that know that language will know what the first floor looks like. Hey, we're going to be in Micah uh, toward the end of chapter 3 uh, and the beginning of chapter 4 today. We'll drop anchor there. We'll move around a little bit, but that will be the, the passage where we'll start and we'll work out of. So uh, if you've got Bibles with you or you've got your Bible uh, on your phone, go ahead and be opening, uh, if you will, to Micah chapter 3. How many of you are, are watching, even though it's, it's wonky and different and off a year, uh, the Tokyo Olympics? Anybody watching? Yeah, about eight of us. Yes, so that's, that seems to be the nature of it. Viewership down, I think, 40% this year. Um, but I was not impressed at all when it started. I wasn't concerned about watching. But then I started watching and started watching, and we love the Olympics. Um, at our house, and the more I started watching, the more I watched, and I always get super excited. I'm always proud uh, to be an American, but I'm always super proud to be an American during the Olympics, and I'm happy to report, for those of you that don't know, that we uh, do lead the medal count of uh, 53 to 50 that China has, right? They've got more gold, 23. We've got 20 as of this morning. We'll fix that today, but uh, we are leading the medal count as it should be. And for me, as a child of the 80s, it's very important that uh, we lead the, the medal count against a communist nation. That's a joke, so <laughs> don't get me all fired up. But, um, but I, do, I, do, I do love that. Like, there's something in me that can't, uh, can't resist. I remember in 1988 how excited I was uh, that Sylvester Stallone and Rambo single-handedly defeated the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, Rambo Three. You know, you're so proud to know it just takes one of us um, to defeat an entire military. National pride, honestly, is just, it's, it's part of the human existence, right? Uh, being proud of where you are, uh, being proud of where you're from. National pride uh, has existed as long as nation states have existed in human history. And yet it can, it can be taken too far. And that's what had happened in Micah's day. That was at the, the root of their sin and, and their primary sins of idolatry and injustice that Jake touched on last week was this idea that because they were the people of God, because they were God's formed and created and chosen nation, that their actions were always justified and they would never suffer defeat or consequences for their collective sin. Yet they were wrong. They were very, very wrong. They had forgotten that, that they were God's nation so that they might be a light to all nations. 
so that other nations and people groups, other tribes and tongues might look in at the way they were living, the way that they were relating to one another under the headship of God and marvel and learn what it really means to be truly human. They'd walked away from that. Jake mentioned last week that uh, they were conquered by the Assyrians in 622. The, the northern kingdom of Israel was. The southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by Babylon in 598-597. And what they realized was that this was the work of God. Doing something that they could not have imagined. They could not have imagined them being defeated at the hands of of pagan nations, much less that this was orchestrated by the hand of God. They just couldn't fathom that. The Persians conquered Babylon in 539, and the next year, 538, Cyrus issues a decree and, and allows the Jewish exiles to begin returning home to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild their country, their city walls. And what we're going to see this morning, eventually, is that they return a very different people than they went into exile as. Let's look at Micah chapter 3. We'll pick up chapter 3 in verse 9, and I'll read straight through chapter 4, verse 7. What you're going to see before I jump right here into the text in 3, 9 through 4, 7, is sort of the death and the resurrection predicted by God through Micah of his people. Right? God wasn't walking away from them. But it was time. Sin always bears a consequence. And so God was going to move, in one sense, to wake his people up, to remind them who they are and to teach them more about what that means. You see this in this passage. Let's look and begin with chapter 3, verse 9. Hear this. You leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed. Now, let me just say, anytime you see Zion here, you can just substitute um, Israel there or the people of God. It is figurative Old Testament language for God's covenant people in the covenant place in the land, who build Zion with bloodshed. That's very important, using violence, not just injustice, not just financial injustice, right? Not just vocational injustice, but bloody injustice, violence by the people of God in the name of God. Who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price, surely not. And her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Do you hear the arrogance there? Do you hear the complacency? Therefore, because of you, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. That's incredibly powerful, tactile, tangible language. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill 
a mound overgrown with thickets. In the last days, now this phrase in the last days, is an, it, it signifies an indeterminable amount of time. But what I want you to hear here, and what we see throughout the Old Testament is in that day, in these days, in the last days, at that time, were always descriptors used to signify the faithfulness of God. That at an, an undetermined point in time by, by our standards, God will move on your behalf. God never forgets you as his people. Never. Not as a collective not as a family, not as individuals. God's faithfulness is always there. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. Do you see? We, we just moved out of destruction language, rubble language, the language of defeat, and now we're moving into the language of rebuilding. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Peoples will, people will, will flow to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his has. That's always the point of biblical and theological teaching, that we may walk in the paths of God, that you and I might be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts and our minds, rewiring what sin has twisted, confused, and tangled. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, little g, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God, big G, forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles, and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. Do you, do you hear the, the, the verbiage of death and resurrection here? Of judgment and restoration? Old Testament scholar Peter Craigie says of this particular portion of Micah, he said, one of the reasons for the beauty of this passage is that it is totally out of harmony with the reality of our world, this, this peace among nations and mankind, this provision where everyone has what they need and no one is trying to take from another. No one is going to war or training for war. Yet, yet, although it's completely out of harmony with the reality of our world, yet fully in harmony with what we would like the world to be. Wouldn't all sane, stable 
people prefer peace? When you go home, let's test this on a, on a micro level instead of a macro level. When you go home after church today, wouldn't you prefer peace in your house to conflict? Even on a Sunday, maybe? Maybe we can pull this off? Emotionally and mentally stable and sane people prefer peace. What we see glimmers of, and I will acknowledge it, it is just glimmers of all four of these in this passage, and we'll kind of pull some from some other parts of Micah, some from Isaiah here, but what we see glimmers of here are four realities that we see over and over throughout the Old Testament and even throughout church history in wide movements and even in the life of specific individual local churches, local church congregations. We see it over and over on a micro level. And in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we see it fully and finally at a macro level. We see that this is the direction of human history. And I want to run through these four briefly with you. The first is this. We see a, a remnant. We see a remnant here. And I want to talk about that. We actually saw that word in the passage, remnant. God says he'll, he'll, he'll make the lame a remnant of his. A remnant throughout the Old Testament is most often spoken of as a, a faithful percent a faithful minority of a whole that God maintains that God maintains that however much unfaithfulness there is however much sin there is rampant in the life of the people of God God will preserve a remnant of people for himself who are faithful and do not bow their knees or their heads to other gods if you want to flip back to Micah chapter 2, or maybe uh, your Bible's like mine, you can just look above chapter 3 there. Look at verses 12 and 13 of Micah 2. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. He, he, he's talking about after this judgment, and as they're walking through judgment in exile in a foreign land. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen. Like a flock in its pasture, the place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. This is a picture of the fact that as the people of God, our battle belongs to the Lord. As men and women of God, your personal battles belong to the Lord. And He will fight for you. As His covenant people redeemed by the blood of His own Son. God's saying, I will bring out of this destruction, defeat, and season of judgment a faithful remnant. Skip over a couple of chapters to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 7. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. This 
fully and finally realized through the coming of Jesus Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now the people of God are truly in the midst of many peoples all around the world. The movement of God through his people is on the march, changing lives and altering the trajectory of cultures and even human history. Isaiah, if you'll remember, we said Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries. They were on the scene at the same time, prophesying to the people of God, speaking and teaching to them about their sin, trying to wake them up and get them to to loosen their grasp on idolatry and injustice and turn back to God. Isaiah, the latter chapters uh, of, or the latter um, chapter 30s, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, around there, there's this uh, kind of question about, will God or Assyria finally rule and reign and win? Or rather, will our God, at this time there was confusion in Israel, is Yahweh the God, or, or is he really our God? And the Assyrians have their gods, and the Babylonians have their gods, and the Persians, and the Egyptians, and on and on it goes. Whose gods will win? Verses 31 and 32 of chapter 37, Isaiah 37, verses 31 and 32, Isaiah says this, Once more a remnant of the kingdom of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. It's this picture of health from top to bottom, of fruitfulness from top to bottom, of the people of God being and doing what the people of God are supposed to be and do. When you plant a seed, it is supposed to take root below and bear fruit above. Verse 32, For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors... The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Throughout the history of the church, not just the Old Testament, but the history of the church, there have been rises and falls, increases and decreases of the movement of God in an area. But God has always kept for himself a remnant of faithful people, and rebuilt on their faithfulness and zeal for him. By his glory, for his glory, to the good of his people and our world. God is the faithful one. John Oswald says that God's ardor, God's ardor for them is in no way diminished. Right, And let me, let me, I feel like I need to release a little bit of tension here because Paul makes very clear throughout his letters, especially in Romans and triumphantly in Romans 8, that there's now no longer any of this kind of judgment and wrath of God stored up for the people of God. That it was all poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, that, does, that, does that mean that God won't lead us through seasons of discipline? Not at all. But you and I hear that word in a way that, that, that the receivers and the hearers of Paul's letters would not have heard it. When we hear discipline, we hear timeout, spanking, that kind of thing. We hear smaller human wrath and judgment. But that's not what the Greek word implies. It's training. It's preparation. It's what an athlete or warriors go through as they prepare. Does it mean we won't walk through dark seasons? Not at all. 
That we won't go through prolonged seasons of, of pain and questions and doubt. Not at all. But it does mean that this kind of cyclical buildup of sin and then the pouring out of wrath, the wrath of God on it, that has to be done, was done fully and finally on the cross in and through Jesus Christ. So I don't want you to, to see this part of, of this cycle just continuing at the level and the way in which we see it in the Old Testament because it really can warp your view of God. And instead of seeing a gracious, merciful God that's trying to lead his people into the way of life, even being patient with generations of sin and complacency and obstinance, you kind of get a, a, a mean God, happy God view, an Old Testament God, a New Testament God, and that's not it at all. That's not it at all. John Oswald is getting at this. God's order for them is in no way diminished. And whenever the faintest spark of trust appears in them, his breath is there to fan it into flame. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Whenever the faintest spark of trust appears. Because if you follow Jesus very long, could you not say that there have been seasons where that's all you had was the faintest spark of trust in God? And yet it is true that his breath is there to fan that spark into a flame. God maintains for himself a remnant, and he rebuilds on that remnant. We not only see a remnant, though, we see a redeemer throughout Micah. And if you know some of your, your Old Testament prophetic passages about the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah, you know that at least one of the major ones exists in Micah. We won't cover it this morning, but we'll glance at it next week. But I, you've heard this language as we've been reading verses right now, as you, if you've been paying attention, that God is the one going to do the deliverance for his people. But I want to read one verse from chapter 4, Micah chapter 4, for you. Micah 4.10. Micah 4.10. Think of the tiny shotgun. Micah 4.10. Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hands of your enemies. God doesn't just preserve for himself a remnant. He sins and is himself a redeemer. And this is good news because you're going to find yourself even on the other side of fully placing your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, being redeemed, set free from the consequences of your sin and more and more sanctified, more and more made into the image of Christ, you're going to walk through seasons and times and circumstances where you simply can't pull yourself up. Anybody ever been there? You had no hope in your human strength, your human intelligence, your human cleverness. All that was gone. What you needed was your Redeemer. You needed your Redeemer to come and to lift you up and to set your feet on solid ground. God is always doing for his people what we cannot do for ourselves. Some of it we see and much of it we do not. God is always doing more in every situation and circumstance in your life than you can see at any given moment. God is always doing more, and he's doing it for your good and for his glory. 
Some of you this morning, God would just say, hold on. Just hold on. Trust me and hold on. Stay with me. Walk with me. I am your Redeemer. One of my favorite uh, books with regard to biblical backgrounds and biblical studies and culture is a book by a guy named Kenneth Bailey uh, entitled uh, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. It's a remarkable work. Uh, Kenneth Bailey was a Presbyterian um, uh, missionary and missiologist, uh, anthropologist. He uh, taught in the Middle East and lived in the Middle East for over 30 years. So when you live in a culture like that for over three decades, you come to understand texts that come out of that culture in a way that we in the West, without that cultural background, simply cannot do. Does that make sense? It's sort of like you, you take a language in school and then you do a little time in a country that speaks that language and you learn all kinds of nuances and colloquialisms that you can't learn in the classroom. One of the things in there that uh, Bailey said he marveled at and he was taught by shepherds who steal so much of life in the Middle East, uh, if you've been there you know it, it, is still so much like it was 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years ago. And, and part of Jesus' parable about the shepherd leaving the 99 and going and, and bringing back the one, it, it, it literally the language there is he, he carries back the one. And part of what Bailey learned from Middle Eastern shepherds is that when sheep are singled out, when they're lost from the flock and they get confused, they simply lay down and they stay there until they die. There's a kind of paralyzation that, that happens to them. And shepherds will go and they will literally put them on their shoulders because the sheep are paralyzed. Fear has paralyzed them. And the shepherds will carry them back. And once they get back with the other sheep and they recognize the familiar sounds, familiar smells, familiar location, you know, they can kind of shake it off and, and they're good to go again. This is the picture of redemption. You had nothing to do with yours. There's nothing you can do. Dead men and dead women have nothing to perform on their own behalf. I've shared with you before, I've done a lot of funerals and no one's ever popped up out of the casket and said, let's do lunch. All right? We see a remnant. We see a redeemer. Beautifully, we see a restoration. We saw that in the opening verses of chapter 4, that God was going to bring them into Babylon in judgment. But he was also going to bring them out and bring them back. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, give us a beautiful picture of this. Micah chapter 7, starting in verse 18. Who, who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Here's what's amazing. God doesn't just preserve a remnant and send a redeemer. He's also having to forgive the, forgive the pardon or forgive the transgressions and pardon the sins even of his remnant. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Don't miss that. It's not an accident that Micah chooses this wording, that, that God is willing to, in fact, he has to. You can't love anything 
without anger being the other side of that coin. If you love someone, I remember just, I don't have a lot of temper. My brother's got all of that. There's enough to go around in my family. But for whatever reason, largely the temper thing passed over me, and things are usually just funny to me, much to the detriment of my wife. And aggravation sometimes. Men, have you ever been there where you're, you know, you're locked in it, you know it's not going well in a discussion with your wife, and for some reason it's all you can do not to laugh? You don't know why you feel that way. Maybe that's just me. Well, that's another thing. But, yeah, I try so hard not to smile or laugh. But I remember uh, coming uh, into a, a little kind of a fast food restaurant, an old kind of diner place, and Cade, our, our oldest son, was, I don't know, this old, and there was a young dude in the car, music going loud. He's not paying any attention to anything. And kind of he starts backing out. And I said, whoa, he had his window down. I said, whoa, we're walking up there. Cade's uh, right there with me. And I saw him look back in the mirror with me. And it's like he just kind of gaffed it off. I don't know if he's sitting. And he started backing off. And I got so angry. I kicked the back of his car, slammed my, you know, slammed my fist on his door. We exchanged verbal pleasantries. And my nephew, one of my brothers and my dad were there, and they're like, dang, we're proud. Like, we lose our temper all the time. Um, right? But here's the thing. I was so angry and so angry so quickly because of my deep and passionate love for my son. Does that make sense? God's love for his creation and love for you means that he will necessarily be moved to anger at times. A God who's not angry over injustice and idolatry. A God who will not eventually bring judgment for injustice and idolatry is not a God you want to submit your life to. But Micah says his anger doesn't last forever. He delights in showing mercy. It is the disposition of God. It is the inclination of God to show mercy. He delights in it. Verse 19 you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Can you imagine that day finally fully fulfilled in the second coming of Christ, new heaven and new earth, where none of your brokenness, none of your sin, none of the ramifications of it or the residue of it remains. God has hurled it into the depths of the sea. Verse 20, you will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham. Let me tweak this a little bit in a way that is absolutely in keeping with the totality of Scripture. You will be faithful to your church and you will show love to those who are yours as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. There's a restoration. God protects a remnant. He always provides a redeemer and he gives restoration he gives restoration that's why paul could could say in philippians 1 6 as he's opening his passionate and joyful letter to a church that he dearly loved in philippi and he said man i'm just so confident of this i, I can say all this being confident in this that that he who began this good work in you will see it through to its completion in christ jesus God doesn't start work, he doesn't finish. God doesn't start work, he doesn't finish. He's not a teenager. That's mean. We all know we start work, we don't finish. 
One last thing. And we'd have to pull from all over the place and from intertestamental period between the closing of the Old Testament canon and the opening of the New Testament documents for this. So I just want to state it and kind of explain it to you. God gives a revelation. He doesn't ever waste the time of his people. He never wastes the pain of his people. He never wastes the dark seasons. While the people of God are in Babylon, in exile, not where they want to be confused in pain, shocked and stunned in the beginning. God sends a revelation and they realize over their time in this foreign land that God is the God of the entire world. There is only one God and it is Yahweh, it is their God. He is the God of all peoples and all places at all times. And it took them being removed from the land that they thought God was attached to. The temple being destroyed where they thought God dwelled and dwelled alone. For them to realize God is with them anywhere. Friends, God is with you everywhere. He is as much with you on the side of the road or when you're cooking in your kitchen, when you're in a a meeting that's not going well at work, as He is with you this morning. And it took them being in this situation and circumstances to experience this. They came back a far different people. They were far more missional coming back from exile than they were going into exile. They had a renewed, higher level of commitment to the Word of God, to being formed as the people of God by the teaching and outworking and commitment to the Word of God. They had begun to record Scripture in a way that they hadn't done before when they were no longer in the land and in the temple. Experience is the mother of all teachers, is it not? I had, a, I had a, just a moment of memory with that this week. Um, when I was growing up, for whatever reason, I was like a, a wasp, hornet, yellow jacket magnet. They would fly great distances to sting me on the back of the neck or the forehead or anywhere else. I would have my brothers around me who were far worse in every way than me. And yet, we would be doing something and I would get stung multiple times. It became a running joke in our family. Everyone was safe if I was around. So Friday, uh, I'm taking Karis, our youngest daughter, over. I'm going to drop her off at Tori's house to kind of help with the kids and some things while Tori's doing other things. Uh, Any of you moms in here remember a time where uh, it, it was the highlight of your day to be given a time to shower without interruption and without rush. Uh, this is the place where some of us still live, right? So I'm dropping Karis off, and as we're walking up to the front porch, there's a hornet outside about this big, right? About this big. Big yellow and black nasty thing, kind of, you know, and I'm kind of going like this as I get up there, and he just keeps coming back, you know, and then I'm like, oh, are we going to go, you know? Are we going to do it? Because experience has taught me they're going to try to sting me, period. Right? I can run, but they're going to get me in the back of the neck. So if it's go time, let's do it right there. I'll take my sting, and I'll dope up him, then I'll go in and say, Tori, do you have anything? Because it's it's up in this area here. Their experience in Babylon formed them deeply in beautiful ways because they found God had not left them. That regardless of location or circumstance, God was with them. That he hadn't departed because of their overconfidence. I'm grateful for that. 
Uh, this week as we were talking about the Olympics, I got fired up and inspired, and I Googled oldest Olympians. Because I'm thinking there's still time, right? And so, what is wrong with you people? So, there are several Olympians in their 50s right now, and one who's 62. The oldest Olympian to win a medal was 72, won a silver medal. And so, I start thinking, right, next 10, 10 months or so, I'm going to finish my doctorate. Then what? Right? And so, then I googled easiest events to qualify for the Olympics for. I don't know why, I don't know why I'm built like this, Right? Skeet shooting, fencing, this stuff is right up my alley. Archery, a few team sports that nobody cares about, like badminton or something. And so I go in to share the news with Sharon so she could share my excitement. And I said, babe, so I'm going on about this and 50-something, you know, and I said, fencing. I said, I feel like I could probably qualify for fencing right now. And without even looking up, she said, of course you do. I was like, hey, I've been sword fighting since I was little bitty. Sticks and everything. She said, you don't know anything about fencing. And I said, I watched a whole Magnum P.I. episode about it. Like 12 times, you keep one hand back here, you do this thing, you push on them a buzzer. I've, this is not difficult. So I don't know, maybe we'll see, right? Maybe we'll see. Three more years, you got another run at it. Some of it doesn't look that hard. I remember the first pastor I served under, gracious, gracious man. I was a youth minister, and he said at one point, he said, you, you may not always be right, but you're always confident. <laughs> and so as, as I'm reading through this, I'm so grateful for God's patient love and his delightful mercy in his people. You know, this last May marked 10 years, the 10-year anniversary of the death of Osama bin Laden. You'll remember that uh, special operators from the Navy's Special Warfare Dev Grew team, SEAL Team 6, uh, flew into Abbottabad, Pakistan under the cover of darkness, um, assaulted a compound, killed Osama bin Laden. It's interesting looking back. I, while I was gone, I listened to an audio book. There was plenty of time during the drive. Uh, from a man who spent 50-something years, if you can imagine that, in the Special Forces community as a CIA contractor. He actually turned 72 in Afghanistan. I'm like, right on. Right? Way to live, brother. He's in the mountains of Afghanistan then. But he was on bin Laden's trail for the United States doing surveillance and watching his movements and recording things about him uh, through most of the early to mid-90s in the Sudan. If you remember, bin Laden didn't just bring what he brought to our homeland on September 11th of 2001, but he also attra uh, attacked our embassies um, in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam in 98, the USS Cole in 2000. But finally, justice came for him. And I read an article this week that's just come out, part of a new book um, about that event. Uh, and it had some kind of catchy titles like, Bin Laden Caught by His Laundry. And what they talked about is that once, once our CIA analysts got uh, the idea that something's going on in this compound and they saw sort of the trade craft that was happening with the way it was built and uh, the practices, the rhythms of the people there, and they knew that this is not a normal person here, right? Uh, they, they began using all of the tricks of the trade to figure out, could this be Osama bin Laden? 
And finally, ultimately, after lengthy periods of watching the laundry hanging out and deciding how many people that laundry represented, they realized that among the unseen guests that never came out and you could never see was at least one tall adult male, two to three females, and seven or eight children, which represented perfectly UBL and his immediate family. As I, I thought back to that time 10 years ago, it took us 10 years to get to that point after September 1, and it's been 10 years. Does it seem like it's been 10 years? It doesn't to me. I thought, and, and, and one writer I read com, uh, commented on this, that, that UBL was, was eventually undone by his own arrogance and complacency. He believed that the compound that he designed and the security measures he put in place would allow him to avoid justice for as long as he desired. And I thought about that. That came to mind several times this week as I was thinking about Israel. And they really believed in their arrogance and in their complacency that their status as a people of God allowed them to behave however they wanted to engage in injustice, not just injustice, but violent injustice, as we saw in the text originally. And that they could avoid any semblance of justice or reckoning. But that was not true. The difference is that the faithfulness of God among his people means that when he historically has had to deal with his people, that is never the last word. Death doesn't get the last word. In Jesus Christ, resurrection, new life, restoration has the last word. God preserves a remnant. He always sends a redeemer. He leads us into restoration, and he always gives us revelation. He teaches us who he is and who we are in him as we walk through seasons of pain. My desire this morning, for you individually, collectively, for us as a church, is that we understand and trust in the beauty and the faithfulness of God. And that however, the dark, however dark the night may be, however long the season of confusion and difficulty may be, that we will know our God is a deliverer. And in his time, when that day comes, he will see his work in us through to its completion. Let's stand and pray.